king now if you fear and worship the lord and listen to his voice and if you do not rebel against the lord's commands then both you and your king will show that you recognize the lord as your god but if you rebel against the lord's commands and refuse to listen to him then his hand will be as heavy upon you as it was upon your ancestors Now stand here and see the great thing the Lord is about to do. You know that it does not rain at this time of year during the wheat season. I will ask the Lord to send thunder and rain today. Then you will realize how wicked you have been in asking the Lord for a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people were terrified of the Lord and of Samuel. Pray to the Lord your God for us, or we will die, they told Samuel. For now we have added to our sins by asking for a king. Don't be afraid, Samuel reassured them. You have certainly done wrong, but make sure sure now that you worship the Lord with all your heart and don't turn your back on him. Don't go back to worshiping worthless idols that cannot help or rescue you. They are totally useless. The Lord will not abandon his people, because that would dishonor his great name. For it has pleased the Lord to make you his very own people. As for me, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you, and I will continue to teach you what is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and faithfully serve him. Think of all the wonderful things he has done for you. But if you continue to sin, you and your king will be swept away. Today is a pretty important day in, uh, in mine and Katie's ministry here. Uh, it was a year ago, well tomorrow, but a year ago today that Katie and I came here and preached to you for the very first time. Well, that I preached. Katie, Katie was awesome. Um, and so, <laughs> she, she, she's my support. The one I bounce ideas off of. I couldn't do it without her. Um, but we were here a, a year ago, uh, a year ago, um, coming for interviews and then ultimately in view of a call. So this is a pretty cool, a pretty cool Sunday that in the past year, um, my coming to do ministry here has been uh, the biggest change in my life uh, that has been the biggest change in the life of, of this church. And I get to thinking about change, which is an interesting concept, right? Uh, the whole idea of Christian sanctification, which is what the text gets at today, the, the whole idea of sanctification means change in the life of the, of the believer. And I just, I wonder why God created such a dynamic world where everything has been in flux and everything has been shifting and everything has sort of been changing from the very foundation of the world, right? Uh, And I wonder what purpose change has in the life of the believer because if we're going to be honest, there are some people who are excited about change and ready for change to happen and, and there are some who resist any sort of change at all, at all costs because we, we really just as a people, we like what is familiar to us. And, and I think we can be honest, we all like what is familiar to us, yet 
God, by His providence, provides change and calls us to sanctification and, and calls us away from our own righteousness, uh, away from our sin, and, and changes us into, into new people like we have seen the Holy Spirit work us all in the past few weeks. Just one second. He does put rocks in the road. I'm about to, if I just, I can stare the sound system into submission. (laughs) Good luck on that. Good luck on that. But this thing called change, um, very interesting concept. And so today, we're we're going to look at why, why God introduces change into our lives, uh, what purpose He has for that, how does this glorify Him, how does, how does change in our lives and in our, in our, in our church and in our workplaces and in our homes, how does, that, how does that even come close to glorifying God who, who doesn't change, and God is the only one who doesn't change in the midst of all this. So that being said, we're just going to dive into this text, and we're going to look at it in three parts. First of all, in verses 14 and 15, we're, we're going to see the call to obedience, the call to obey God's law. And in verses 16 through 19, we're going to see the repentance of the people. And it's something that's familiar to us at this point, right? We have seen the people repent over and over and over again in the text. Then we're going to look at verses 20 through 25, and, and we're going to see what in the world sanctification, change in our lives, has to do with God's choosing of His people. What sanctification has to do with with election. And we'll start in verse 14 together. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him, and listen to His voice, and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, as it was with your fathers. And so we see this call to obedience. Now what strikes me about this verse, very firstly, right from the outset, uh, in verse 14, is this word, if. If you will do this, then things will be this way. And then in verse 15, starting out, if you will not listen, if you will not do this, then things will be this way. Uh, And so we have to think about these if-then statements within the Old Testament. Uh, There are some people who will apply the these if-then statements or explain these if-then statements in such a way that seems to make God subject to the will and whims of people. And so this becomes a very important thing for us to look at uh, through the Old Testament, particularly here in 1 Samuel. Is it the case, do you think, that God is subject to people that the actions of people or the decisions of people sway God in any way or move God in any way to do something other than he was going to do in the first place. And, and there are people who will answer both ways, like, yes, because God answers prayer, right? And that tends to be that yes, because God answers prayer. And then there are those, like, no, if God is sovereign, then God... God doesn't subject himself to the authority of people. And so I just want to spend some time looking at this in context. It's very easy for us to, to pull verses like this out of context, like we talk about often, right? Pull verses like this out of context and make them out to say or mean anything that we want them to say or 
mean? The very first place we see if-then statements like this, and, and they are prevalent through the Old Testament. There are many of them, right? The first place we see them is in the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy in the Torah. Now, the law has... Pause, play. All right. The law has a couple bookends here. Um, the beginning of the law, which explains what's going to happen through the law of God, and then the end of the law, which says, okay, that's what happened. And this is God's standard for faith and for practice. And it's found in the first five books of the Bible. Without understanding the pointing, the direction of the first five books of the Bible, we can't really understand the rest of the, of the Bible, what comes after the first five books. Now, the Torah begins in Genesis, a word that means beginning, right? Genesis. And the first chapter in Genesis is chapter 1, and the second chapter in Genesis is chapter 2, and the third chapter in Genesis is chapter 3. And here, in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Genesis, we find the premise to not only the Torah, God's law, but to the entire Bible. And so we have to understand what's going on in Genesis 1 through 3 to understand the law. We have to understand what's going on in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 to understand the whole Bible. And so I just I want to summarize this for you, tell you the story of creation. Of course, God creates the universe, right? This is going to be really annoying this morning, isn't it? Somebody go stare that into submission for me. So God creates the world. He creates all things, and He creates people in His image. And because God is Creator, He owns everything, right? And He gives Adam and Eve the very first if-then statement. If you eat from this tree, this specific tree, in the middle of the garden, if you eat from this tree, you will die. But if you keep the command of the Lord, you will not die, you will live forever, right? And that's the, that's the command there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Now in Genesis chapter 3, we, we see the story unfold. And Eve sees that the fruit of the tree, it, it looks like it tastes good and it's, and it's profitable for gaining wisdom. The serpent, the serpent told her that it was beneficial for making one wise, and God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because He doesn't want you to be like Him, knowing good and evil. And so Eve takes this fruit and she eats it and she gives some to her husband who was with her and he ate some too. The first people born or rather made in this perfect condition, right? Without sin and without the weight of sin and without being led by the darkness of their hearts and, and without being born into sin, still sinned against God. Because by nature, and Paul explains this in the book of Romans, because by nature people are unrighteous and because of our unrighteousness, God gives the law and the law causes people to sin. That's why God gives the rule in the first place, right? And then we look at the end of the law. After this first part of the law, even the first people born into perfection couldn't keep the law. What, what chance do the rest of us have, right, if Adam and Eve couldn't keep the law? We get to the, the last part of the law, the last book in, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 26 through 29. God has given the law. This is the law that the people are to abide by when they enter the land of Canaan. This is a sign of God's covenant with the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 26 through 29, 
God says this, Take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. And so all of these if-then statements presented through the law, the first five books of the Bible, they are there as a witness against people. And so we know this about the, the whole law, the entirety of the law, every if-then statement that God gives the people. It is, it is not a statement declaring that people can do one thing or people's ability to, to live up to the glory of God. Those aren't the kind of statements these are. These are, by nature, revelatory statements. These statements are given in order to show people that people cannot live up to God's standard, that people People will fall short of God's glory. This book of the law, place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. Verse 27, For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, and this is Moses speaking to the people the word of God, while I'm still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death. And so Moses there predicts, your past has been rebellion against God despite the law. You were not able to keep the conditions that God has given. In the future, Moses, speaking from God, says, you will not be able to keep these conditions. And he makes that very clear. And so it just, we see, confirmed, that the purpose of the law was to stand as a witness against the people. In verse 28, assemble to me all the elders of your tribes. And your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. Against who? The elders of Israel. It's it's all meant as a witness against the people. This is a downer. I'm sorry this morning. The Bible is given as a witness against people. Verse 29, For I know that after my death you will act corruptly. And and Moses is saying he knows this. It's been revealed to him. He knows this. I know you will act corruptly. You will not be able to keep God's conditions. And turn from the way which I have commanded you. You will not follow these laws. You will not be able to. And evil will befall you in latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger with the work of your hands. And we get to the New Testament when Paul is describing the purpose of the law. Ron, I just have to thank you for going back there and staring that into submission. I don't know what you did, but this thing is like working perfectly now. That's awesome. Paul, when he describes the function of the law and the purpose of the of the law in Romans chapter 5 verses 20 through 21 and Galatians chapter 3 verses 19 and, and through 22. Uh, those of you who, who have been here, we've walked through those two texts together. Paul essentially confirms exactly what Moses here is, is saying before, before his own death and before the people enter the land of Canaan that people will not be able to keep the law. The law is meant to increase the trespass. The law is meant to be a witness against the people. People are slaves to the law, and the whole purpose of every single if-then statement, these conditional statements that God gives in the law, is to stand as a witness against the people, to show the people that you will fall short of the glory of God. You do fall short of God's own glory. And that's precisely what is happening here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. 
If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and listen to His voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. That's the first condition, right? If you obey the law, then things will go well with you. You will be good followers of God. You will live well in this kingdom. And then the the second condition, but if you will not listen to the voice of your Lord, if you disobey God's law, rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. This is the exact same format that we see throughout the Torah, throughout the law, throughout the Pentateuch. And it accomplishes the exact same purpose here. To show the people, and this will be confirmed later in our passage, to to show the people or to stand as a witness against the people to reveal to people that they fall short of the glory of God. That is the first and most significant purpose that the law serves for us. And that is not foreign to those sitting in this room. We've, we've been over that. Verses 16 through 19, we see the people repent again. Whether sincere or not, it's not for me to judge. The Scriptures don't reveal that information to us, but we see the people repent. Verse 17, uh, verse 16, Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. There in in verse 16, it is confirmed for us that the purpose of this conditional statement, this conditional thing that God is giving the people through Samuel, it's it's for the purpose of their seeing. It's for the purpose of revelation that they would see this great thing which the Lord will do before their eyes. And it's not revealed to us yet what this great thing is, at least not in this text, right? Right? But this conditional statement serves a revelatory purpose, just like we've seen in the Torah, just like we've seen in the Old Testament. And so here, this is like the coolest thing about this passage of Scripture, about this part of the story. In Deuteronomy, Moses was was telling the people of Israel this sort of thing, giving people the law, the conditions of the law, to reveal to people that they would not be able to live up to God's standard, that they would fall short of, of God's grace and glory. Right? And he's doing this in preparation as the kingdom is being put together and as the kingdom is about to inherit the land of Canaan. And chapter 11 here, and, and moving into verse 12 of 1 Samuel, we see that the kingdom is being renewed. It had been splintered, and now the kingdom is being renewed under a throne which is being reserved for the Messiah. And Samuel, here in 1 Samuel chapter 12, is doing exactly the same thing that Moses was doing before the kingdom was put together in the land of Canaan in the first place. This really is a renewing of the kingdom, and it follows the same pattern Give the law, the conditions of the law, as a witness, as a testimony against the people to increase the trespass. Call people to obedience and restore, in this case, the kingdom. Whereas with Moses, it was build the kingdom, put the kingdom together, or prepare the kingdom to be, to be put together in the land of Canaan. And the purpose is revelatory. See this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Verses 17, uh, we, we see this illustration that kind of helps us to understand what's going on in this passage. 
is it not the wheat harvest today? Now, what is the harvest? It's when the wheat is We've been through the growing season. It's time for the harvest. It's, it's time to do this, right? Time to pick the grain. I will call to the Lord that He may send thunder and rain. Why? It's harvest time. Why do we need, why do we need a thunderstorm to, to water the fields? It's time for us to get out and, and do the labor and get the grain for this, for this season, right? Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. Right? The thunderstorm that Samuel is about to pray and ask the Lord for is itself meant to be a testimony against the people. An illustration of God's rightful judgment, an illustration of God's rightful wrath, His just wrath against, against the people. A thunderstorm coming in, according to commentators, would destroy the crop, leave the land barren. I don't know if it's lightning setting fields on fire or high winds damaging the crops enough where people can't eat them or heavy rains drowning out the crops. I don't know what all that entails, right? But nonetheless, this is meant to be an illustration of the people's wickedness and God's just judgment against wickedness. Please answer this question this morning. Who created the world? God. Who owns, who owns all of creation? God. How vast is God's dominion, His reign, over all things? Right? Now answer this question for me. How much authority does the United States of America have compared to the authority that God has over His own creation? How much authority does the United Nations have over the world that ultimately belongs to God? None. Brothers and sisters, we are so fearful of the consequences of breaking federal law in the United States. But that is nothing compared to transgressing God's law and the consequence that comes along with that. Nothing. And we would be so fearful of transgressing transgressing international law. And even that is nothing compared to transgression against God's holy and perfect law. If God owns creation, and God owns the nations, and it is God who establishes kings, and it is God by His providence who works all things together, right? And His law, His law is more severe than any law that the United States has. And His law is more severe than any international law that you know, the nations can put together, can, can conjure up, can ratify. God's law is way more severe than this, and we, and we brush it off. We say, no, that's not, that's not that important.
Here, God gives this illustration of His justice. The people have transgressed His law. They will transgress His law. He has predicted that. In fact, and we'll just move into the next chapter, chapter 13, and we'll be there next week, and we'll see the people transgressing this very law that they're promising to keep, right? They're just unable to keep God's holy and righteous conditions, and so God's holy, just, righteous anger burns against them, and His wrath burns against people in a just way because people transgress His law which is way more severe than any other law of the land, any law of people. Verse 18, So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. This is a, a living parable, an, an illustration that's actually happening. Right? And then all the people greatly feared the Lord. And Samuel. I want to talk about this word feared for just a moment. We will often hear that in Scripture, whenever you see the word fear, you're talking about a reverence and awe. Reverence and awe doesn't fit here. In fact, you look back at the at the Hebrew language and the word is terrified. Terrified of the, the just and righteous anger of the Lord, the rightful punishment for transgression against His law. The people are terrified because here comes this thunderstorm as an illustration of God's wrath against, against people because of their sin. People greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And rightly so. Again, we remind ourselves of the severity of God's law a law that He chose to write in stone. A law that Jesus Christ taught would never pass away. Not a single letter. Christ even said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we are all transgressors of God's law. Have you ever been fearful what God, the judge, might do to us for transgressing His law. Have you ever been terrified reading the law and saying, oh my gosh, what a sinner I am. And if God were to, were to, to do what is fair with my life, He would judge me and He would condemn me and He would sentence me to death because I have had gods other than Him transgressed His holy law. But all the people said to Samuel, they're fearful, right? They're terrified. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. They didn't say, Samuel, please pray to God and ask this thunderstorm to go away. Please rebuke the storm that is... No, that's far from their minds now. They get it. They get the picture, right? They get the illustration. This is a picture of what God's wrath will do to people if it were to be carried out against people. It will kill them. And rightfully so, because they have transgressed the most severe law of the land, the only righteous law, God's moral law in the, in, the, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, so that we may not die, for 
We have added to all of our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. And it's implied there. There's, you know, we learned that it's not the establishment of a king that doesn't agree with God's will. It's the fact that people rejected God as their king. We have added to all of our sins. They recognize it. There's conviction. And this, the thunderstorm is not what scares the people. It's the conviction of their sin and the realization that there is a God, holy God, the only God, who must judge sin. He cannot not judge sin because He is just. And this is the picture we get of God in this text, right? We get to verses 20 through 25 and we're going to see an amazing promise. We're going to see how God is working out the sanctification of, of His chosen people. Verse 20, Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. Do not be terrified. There's a comfort here. Coming from the prophet of God, the words of God, you have committed all this evil, yet... Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things, which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. Samuel's calling the people to to change. The people have seen the law of God. The people have seen this picture of God's wrath that has been revealed to them exactly what they deserve, right? The death sentence for their treason against holy God. Yet, God speaking through Samuel says, do not fear. Do not, you have committed evil. But do not be terrified because you are the chosen people of God. Instead of being terrified, here is what you do. Look into the law again. Change. Do what is in the law. Do not turn from God anymore. Change. And that's what sanctification is, right? It's a bringing of the people of God, already chosen by God, already with God. Bringing of the people of God from disobedience to obedience. And instead of carrying out His just wrath against us, He carried out His just wrath against Christ, God in the flesh, on the cross, so that He might have grace and mercy toward us. And so that all those who are in Christ, their penalty has been carried out on Calvary, on the cross. Their treason has been paid for. Jesus has taken their place. It's what we call substitutionary atonement. This is why faith is in Christ and in Christ alone. Because He's the only one who could pay this penalty on our behalf. Verse 22. Get this. For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name. Why is God not abandoning His people? Why does God take the precious time and energy and go through the the pains of sanctifying, changing His people because of His great name. 
for his own reputation, for his own glory. That's what the text tells us. That's what God has revealed to us in his Bible. He's not doing this just because, oh, I want everybody a chance to make it into heaven. His reason is a little bit more serious than that. In some way, and Paul Washer would say it this way, in some way his, his reputation is at stake. He does this for his own glory that he might be known. He chose a people. He's going to make sure his work is complete within his people. He also says, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Notice here, the people have already been made God's people. Those whom God has chosen for himself, God takes the time to to sanctify. This, we look back up to verse 16. The purpose of the law, the if-then statements, the conditional statements throughout the law and throughout the Old Testament, is so that it might be revealed to people, so that people might see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. This great thing was not the thunderstorm. This great thing is the redemption of God's chosen people. So we look into the law, and we see depravity and wretchedness of humankind. In fact, the people are unable to keep this law. And then we see the grace and mercy that God extends to His chosen people in salvation and in sanctification and bringing people into conformity of His law. Right? And then our attention is drawn to what God is doing. Not what we can do. Not what we can merit. Not what people are accomplishing. Not the great kingdoms and nations and churches that people can build. But to what God is doing. And He receives all glory for this. Verse 23, Moreover, as for me... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will also stay faithful. And God promised in chapter 3 that he would guard all of Samuel's words, right? Such that Samuel would do all that was in God's heart and soul. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you or in your favor, on your behalf, for God's mercy and for His grace. But I will instruct you in the good and right way, not according to your preferences, but according to what you need for the purpose of your sanctification. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. What great things? Grace and mercy. You deserve this. But God is doing something different in salvation and sanctification. And then verse 25, But if you still do wickedly, even after you know, experiencing some degree of God's grace and mercy and you still do wickedly and you're not conformed to the law and you don't obey Christ, if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. And just because of the nature of these if-then conditional statements, we know this, that if someone isn't joyfully and anxiously and excitedly and willfully 
becoming more and more submitted and conformed to the law that God has given, it's evidence that this person is, is, is not in Christ. Right? If a person is not being sanctified, this person is not in Christ. Christ calls the people, sanctifies His people. And so this is another way we can measure our own salvation. We wonder if we're saved or not, right? And we ask this question sometimes, am I really saved? One of the evidences is that we care more and more about obeying the law that God has given. And even Jesus Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not, it's not this. If, if you want to love me, then keeping my commandments will cause you to love me. No, the love comes first. And Jesus' whole anthropology, the way he saw humankind, the people he taught, was the root within us produces the fruit that comes from us, right? And obedience there is the fruit. Love is the root. If we love Christ, we will keep His commandments. Our keeping of His commandments is evidence that we actually love Him. And people want to separate those two things out like, Oh, I love Jesus, but I sin all the time. And they just seem to be okay with that. But that's not what God is working out in sanctification, is it? No. So we see here the second purpose that the law serves. The first purpose is this, that we would look at God's holy law, God's standard, His glory, look into this mirror and see our own unrighteousness, our sin, our depravity, and say, oh my gosh, I am terrified of God. But then God, in His Word, explains His Gospel. And He explains His Gospel here in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Do not be afraid. I offer mercy. And He offers mercy and He offers grace in Christ Jesus. Such that those who have faith in Christ will not have to pay for their own sins because they have been paid for in Christ. And then we see the second purpose of the law, that those who are in Christ, those who are saved, those whom God has called to be a people of His own, now see the law as, as a tool used for their sanctification. So the law is still important, such that we go to the law and we're excited about becoming obedient to Jesus Christ, who has, according to Isaiah chapter 48, who has inspired every word in both the The Torah is the command of Jesus Christ, too. And that's a hard thing for the New Testament church to hear as well, because we say, oh, the, those rules aren't important anymore. But if we're to take the teachings of Scripture seriously, they are. They're meant for our sanctification now that we are in Christ. And so we are saved by grace alone. We are saved through faith alone. It turns out we are also sanctified by grace alone and through faith alone. And as we relate to others civically and in our churches, we become so afraid of this thing called change. And the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, and, and I hope to be some I hope to be some encouragement here, uh, because I have tried to I have tried to stop it in its tracks. And change doesn't stop. It just doesn't. And whether we try and change things or not, things are always changing. They're always in flux. There are always 
growing pains. And especially, you know, over the course of the last year, there, there have been many changes, most of which are completely unintentional, right? Because change just happens. I have certainly, within the last year, grown as a preacher, and that's a change. One church member was telling me the other day, and I take this as a compliment. It made me smile. You preach differently than you did when you first got here. Yeah. I got to thinking about that, and I was like, yes, I do. Uh, I have grown up. Within the la- which is good. We ought to be able to look at the last year of our lives and see how we've grown up, right? I can tell people in this congregation, others who have who have also grown up some more since last year, which is really just cool to see. As a church, we've come to know more about grace, which is amazing, right? There has been forgiveness where forgiveness needed to happen, which is amazing. There's been reconciliation where reconciliation needed to happen, and that has been really amazing. Can I use the word amazing one more time? There's been growth, which is change, and it's good growth. There have been some some intentional changes, but not many. Just things that needed to happen, right? And sometimes we don't really care for that, but if as a church we're, we're just wanting to, to grow more and more in obedience to the law, to to Christ's Word, and both the Old and New Testaments, then we're, as we're studying through the Bible and as we're reading through the Bible, and we're, we're going to see, oh, this is where we need to improve as a church, and so we always want to change in response to that. The truth, brothers and sisters, is that we're always changing, every single one of us. The caveat is that we're either changing toward Christ or away from Christ. I want to be changing toward Christ. And if we're not intentionally changing toward Christ, the other option is that we're going to be changing in the opposite direction. A change is not something we can stop, and it's not something we can instigate. Scripture tells us change so happens as a work of the Holy Spirit. And so if all I'm trying to do is justify the way that I'm doing things, justify the way that I'm living my life, justify the way that I'm doing church, and this is the pattern I find myself in, then I'm not following Christ. And I'm, I'm not being sanctified into conformity with Christ and into conformity with His law. But if I find that, hey, this is what, this is what Christ has commanded, let's find a way to get this done, and I find that that's my attitude and my mentality regarding change in life and at home and at work and, and in church and the way that we relate to others, then I am being sanctified more into conformity with Christ and into the obedience of His law. And that, brothers and sisters, is something to celebrate. Unfortunately, in the next chapter we see Israel fall again. Let that not be so with us. Let us be willfully transformed by the Word of God by the gospel first, by receiving salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and then in sanctification, which is also, again, by grace alone, through faith alone, 
But let us embrace what God is doing in our hearts and in our minds and with our actions, with our works, such that we honor God more with our lives.